The rest of us, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to James chapter 2 today. James chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 26. James chapter 2. The title of the message this morning is, Your Faith Dead or Alive? Now when I say that, the thought of having dead faith doesn't seem to sit right with our theology, does it? After all, if a person's put their faith and trust in Christ, what is their promise? What do they promise? They're promised eternal life, forgiveness of sins. And so is it possible to have a faith that is dead? The two ideas seem mutually exclusive. You're either dead in your sins or you've been made alive in Christ. But as we come to this passage this morning, James goes through his arguments three times, and at the end of each argument, he says the same thing. In verse 17, you'll see him say, Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. In verse 20, But wilt thou not know, but wilt thou know, O man, that faith without works is dead? And then in the last verse, verse 26, So faith without works is dead also. The emphasis that James places on works is what motivated Martin Luther to call this book that we're studying uh, an epistle of straw. He even wondered if it should be in our Bibles. But James is not the only one who expects faith to produce works. John the Baptist told those who wanted to see God's salvation to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Luke chapter 3 verse 8. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21. Paul asked the ones who were committing sin and continuing in it in Romans 2, verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them that do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? And in verse 6, who, talking about God, will render to every man according to his deeds. Paul wrote to Titus about the unbelieving. He said, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. There's a difference between what they said and how they lived. Later in the same epistle, Paul wrote, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Titus Titus 3.8. So here in James, the intent of the passage is not so that Christians will, will all of a sudden get motivated and start doing things so that everybody will know they're a believer, have those external things. Uh, Douglas Moo says, James is not arguing that works must be added to faith, His point, rather, is that genuine biblical faith will inevitably be characterized by works. I like the way Warren Wiersbe put it. He said, we're not saved by faith plus good works, but by a faith that works. Let's look and see what James says in these verses about dead faith. And when we say dead faith, that's a faith that doesn't affect the way you live. That's what he's calling dead faith. First of all, dead faith doesn't care about other believers, verses 14 through 17. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? 
If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. James begins this section by asking three rhetorical questions. He's asking these questions to believers. He addresses them as, My brethren. He uses those two words nine times in the small letter of James. He's identifying his audience as Christians, those who have been united in the same family by the grace of God through Christ Jesus. They're affectionate words. These rhetorical questions, and the rhetorical questions, the answer is already understood. You know what is, the answer should be. Don't you wish every question on a test were that easy? Answer to that rhetorical question, yes. <laughs> These questions are asked to make the listener or the reader think about the, the question and agree with the answer that's understood. Like the question, you don't, and I've heard this a lot lately, you don't think a person can claim to be a Christian and still be constantly living in sin, do you? And the answer, no, I don't. Um, Let's look at the questions themselves. Question number one is in verse 14. You'll see three question marks in this passage. The first question, what doth it profit? Verse 14. We read the word uh, profit at the beginning of 14 and also at the end of verse 16. This word profit means, uh, it came from a, a word that meant to heap up, to load things one upon the other or accumulate. And so it came to mean to benefit or to gain. So James is asking, What good is it? Is there anything gained? Is there any value or benefit in saying that you have faith, but not living like you have faith? The answer is obvious. No. There is no profit. There is no benefit. There's no value. Question number two, can faith save him? It's also in verse 14. The idea of an expected negative answer is even more clear in the original Greek language. Let's revisit the apparent theological disagreement now that James and Paul seem to have. We all know what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We use that often as we talk to other people about the need for Christ. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Let's emphasize those three words. Why? Lest any man should boast. How did you get to heaven? Well, let me tell you what I did to get here. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If we look at the original language in James chapter 2 and verse 14, I think we'll find a key that will help us understand what James is talking about here. There is a definite article, that is the, that, uh, this, a definite article before the word faith. So the verse, we can literally uh, read it, Can the faith save him? Or what he's really saying is, can that faith, can that kind of faith that doesn't affect the way he lives, can that faith really save him? And the answer is no. Why? Because genuine faith will always affect the way that you live. So James and Paul aren't in contradiction to each other. Paul is saying genuine faith saves in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. James is saying here that false faith doesn't save. I like the way Alexander Ross writes 
this point. He says, they are not, that is speaking of James and Paul, they are not antagonists facing each other with crossed swords. They stand back to back, confronting different foes of the gospel. Third rhetorical question, what doth it profit at the end of verse 16? The section ends just like it began. The answer is the same. There is no profit. There's no value in a faith that doesn't affect the way that you live. So again, if your faith doesn't affect the way that you live, then you have the wrong kind of faith. And that's something that we should be startled at. Because if it was true when James was writing to these Jews who were scattered abroad in the diaspora, it must be true as well in our churches. James, he gives his, his readers now an object lesson. The word if, at the beginning of verse 15, introduces a hypothetical situation. The story, again, is here for the sake of argument, but in a way that keeps the readers from, from being defensive, from being argumentative. James is saying, let's just suppose there's a person in need. Okay? This person is called a brother or sister. In other words, this person knows the Lord. He's in God's family. We're related to him. If we have trusted Christ as our Savior as well, we're in the same family. And in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 it says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. And then he says this, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So we should try to do good, we should try to help every other people who are in need, but especially if it's somebody who is a believer, who maybe comes to our church or knows the Lord, and you know that they're a believer and they're in need, especially those who are of the household of faith. This person could be a believing man or a believing woman. Uh, here you don't say to the man who has no food and very little to call his own, Sir, let me take you to 1 Timothy 5.8. Maybe you're not aware of this verse in the Bible. Paul talks about what it means to be the head of the home. Do you know this verse? God says, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel, that is, a person without faith. Nor do you say to a sister in Christ. You know, there are really better ways to use your money, to stretch your money. Let me come over and show you how to clip coupons so you can get more for your money. I do think we have an obligation to help others when they're in financial difficulties to, to counsel with them and to help them get through those things. But when you find someone in desperate need, you can't just give them verbal advice and walk away and not help them physically. What's their condition? This person is found in a continual state of poverty. James mentions two conditions. One, naked, and then lacking daily food. Naked here means thinly clothed. A person who doesn't have that, that money to buy a, a nice outer garment, something that will keep them warm. Lacking in daily food. This is the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. It, it simply means not having enough for today, not having enough food for, for right now. You go to the cupboard, you open it up, there's nothing there. Okay, this is desperate, a desperate condition. James brings up this hypothetical situation, and now he shows the wrong way to respond to the situation. Verse 16, and one of you, and here, James brings it down to that personal level. It was a, a hypothetical story at first, but now he's saying one of you. 
And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. And so these readers are confronted with, with their responsibility to do something. But the response is empty. The words are there. He said, Be ye warmed and filled, or go in peace. Now these were normal things that people said to each other. This was a polite way to greet one another. In fact, Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 7, verse 15, said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. Exactly the same words here. What's the difference? Well, there's nothing wrong with the words. The problem is, in the illustration that James is using, they're only words. They're not going to help a person who's in desperate need. They don't back up their words with any kind of action, any works. John says the same thing in 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? There's a question, and the answer is it can't. And then he says, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Johnstone says, to be liberal of good words, which cost nothing, but to be altogether adverse from giving to the poor of the worldly goods which God has given to us, how utterly hollow and heartless this is. The conclusion, verse 17, even so faith without works is dead, being alone. One commentator says this word alone in James 2.17 simply means by itself. True saving faith can never be by itself. It always brings life, and life produces good works. So dead faith doesn't care about the needs of other believers. Secondly, dead faith doesn't have works, verses 18 and 20. Here again, James starts with an argument, and he illustrates this point with that argument. And then he repeats his conclusion, which is the theme of the passage, faith without works is dead. Verses 18 through 20. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? There's an argument here, a challenge to compare two kinds of faith. James introduces an imaginary person here, yea, a man, may say. And so he, he sets up this, this person, he brings him into the conversation for the sake of argument. Now there have been several suggestions of how these verses are to be understood. It's a very difficult passage and a lot of people have different ideas on, on what he's saying here. It would have been nice if the original Greek language had quotation marks in the, in the quotes here so we knew know who said what. The question I have is why would someone else tell James, you have faith and I have works? Because James is arguing all along that faith without works is dead. Some people, in order to, to make this make sense to them, have introduced another third person in this conversation, not just two people, but three people. I'm going to assume that James is introducing himself. This certain man is him, and he's doing it in humility, a man may say. 
So James says to someone else, thou hast faith and I have works. James continues, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now if you have another idea of how, who's, who's saying this, that's okay as we work through this. As long as we come to that same conclusion, James is pointing out that real faith is evident by what a person does. It's obvious. He says, show me your faith, and I will show you my faith by my works. The, word, the, the by there is the important thing. Works are, are the means by which faith is seen. Oh, you must, have you ever had that happen to you? You, you pray at a restaurant and someone comes up and says, you must be a Christian. Oh, it was a work. It was something that you did that caused them to, to make that conclusion. Now, a person can be saved and not have that outward, perhaps, at that particular point. But faith will evidence itself in works. Belief that doesn't work is not enough. And James illustrates this with the demons those angels that followed Satan in his rebellion. He says they have faith. I don't know if you call that a demonic faith or not, but here's demons have faith. Remember the demon-possessed man that came into the synagogue at Capernaum? The demons in this man spoke out to Jesus, Luke 4.34. They said, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art. The Holy One of God. So here's this this verbal declaration of faith, of belief. I know who you are. You're the Son of God. Once James is, is accusing of dead faith, don't even measure up to that kind of faith that the demons have. Because the demons not only believe, it says, but they also tremble. They shudder. They bristle. So they believe, and that belief affects them. They are visually afraid. Conclusion again in verse 20. But wilt thou know, O man, that faith without works is dead? False faith refuses to accept this truth. We see that in that word wilt. Are you willing to know? This is a point of of rebuke to those people who are reading these words. Won't you know? Aren't you willing to know this, this truth? That there should be evidences of your faith in your life? False faith is held by vain men. Oh, vain man. Vain is empty. You don't have anything inside you. No spiritual life to back anything up. And then false faith is useless. It's dead. Now, the normal word for dead that the scripture uses is the word thanatos, and it means not living anymore. Okay? But here James uses arge. And it's a word that's used in other places for land that lies fallow. It's not producing anything. It's also used uh, to describe money that gains no interest. Again, it's it's useless. It's not doing what it should do, not producing value. So dead faith doesn't produce anything. Third point that he makes, verses 21 to the end of the chapter, dead faith doesn't justify anyone. Now James starts with illustrations from Israel's history. He makes a comparison, and then he repeats his conclusion. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? 
Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed or counted unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now in these six verses we read the phrase justified by works three times. No wonder Martin Luther didn't like this book. The Reformation came and men had seen what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church, the selling of, an indulgen of indulgences, the things that uh, the, the church could earn money, uh, and, and we're, we're saying that salvation could be earned by good works. It was a ta tactic that brought in revenue. Warren Wiersbe, again, were not saved by faith plus good works, but by a faith that works. James brings up two illustrations of faith that works from the history of Israel. He tells about the faith of Abraham and about the faith of Rahab. And these two people, when you think about them, they are totally opposites, especially to this Jewish crowd. Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was moral. Rahab wasn't. Abraham was a great leader. Rahab was just a woman from Jericho. But God is impartial in justifying those who have a genuine faith. And genuine faith shows itself in works. Abraham's faith worked. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Our father identifies him again nationally. These are Jews driven from Jerusalem, scattered abroad. Remember the diaspora, that scattering that we read about in verse 1 of chapter 1. And in chapter 2 and verse 2, they were in the assembly. That was the word synagogue, which is the synagogue. They were Jewish people, okay? And so they're, they're, they're thinking, oh, yes, Abraham, we know him, okay? And they would agree, Abraham's faith worked. Abraham was justified when he offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar. And we go to Genesis chapter 22 and read that account. Abraham's faith was evident because he obeyed God. He obeyed God in a way that most of us would say, I'm not sure this is what I should be doing. God said, Abraham, sacrifice your only son Isaac on the altar. And his faith was so genuine that even as he looked at Isaac and he said, but Lord, this is the son of promise. This is what you promised to me. And he's willing to set that all aside and obey God. I read recently how for family devotions Martin Luther once read the account of Abraham offering Isaac on the altar to his wife Katie Katharina and and she said I don't believe it God would not have treated his son like that but Katie <laughs> but Katie Luther replied he did <laughs> he did James continues in verse 22 Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. The phrase wrought with his works is a play on words. Literally, it's faith worked with his works. His faith was not alone. Remember in verse 17, faith without works is dead being alone. 
And what was the result? It was imputed to him for righteousness. He believed, and the Lord credited him with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me bring out an important note here. When did that happen? When did the Lord impute righteousness to Abraham? Well, for that, we go back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. This was 30 years before Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. Genesis 15, 6, we read, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. The gavel had already come down 30 years earlier, and God said, Abraham, you are justified. We would call that conversion. Now his faith is showing up in his actions of obedience. You don't need work, or you don't work in order to be saved, but faith will always be evident in works. Now James jumps to the Gentile sinner and shows how God rewarded the same kind of genuine faith that works, that's obedient in the life of Rahab. Rahab's faith worked. Verse 25, likewise. There's a similarity between these two people, she and Abraham. The same justification that came to Abraham was given to Rahab. Israel was ready to invade Jericho. They secretly sent out two spies. Someone found out about those spies, told the soldiers they're at Rahab's, and, and the soldiers came. Now, Rahab's house was on a wall. The walls of Jericho were hollow. They could be filled with dirt and debris when they were under attack. Otherwise, the space was big enough to live in. The gates were shut. The spies had no way to get out of the city. But Rahab was willing to risk her life for the spies, and after hiding them, they escaped through a window. Did she have faith? In Joshua 2, 8 and 11, she said, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. She's talking to the spies. She said, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you and you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan, those kings Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And she said, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. That's her statement of faith. And her faith was rewarded or was evident, was proven by her works. She didn't get saved because she hid the spies and helped them escape. The Lord didn't say, oh, that's a good thing. You're going to be converted. Her faith was made evidence by her works. And then we have a comparison, verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The Bible always refers to our bodies as, uh, as earthly tabernacles. One day the tent stakes are going to come up, and our spirits will be called home. And there we'll wait until God gives us a glorified body. For those who are here at the rapture, it'll all happen at the same time. We're caught up to be with the Lord in the air, and we'll be with him forever. Our body is only an earthly tent. Without our spirit, our body is empty. The body without the spirit is dead. And now another conclusion. For the third time, James states the point of the passage. 
In verse 17, he said, faith without works is dead by itself or being alone. Verse 20, wilt thou, uh, wilt thou know, O man, that faith without works is dead? And now in verse uh, 26 at the end of the chapter, so faith without works is dead. Is your faith dead or alive? Lamus Strauss wrote, possibly these verses before us in James are striking at the very heart of the spiritual and moral weakness in most church life today. Faith to many is giving a mental assent to a fact. A man may be asked if he believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He answers positively and affirmatively because he's never believed anything else. He was raised in the midst of orthodoxy. The Bible facts about Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, dying for sinners, and being raised the third day from the dead have always been a part of his thinking. But a head knowledge and mental assent to Christian truth doesn't make one a Christian. For a long time we had in our gospel track rack uh, a track that said, Missing Heaven by 18 inches. It's a distance between the head and the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. James has been talking so far as we've done our study in this book about real faith, genuine faith. Genuine faith rejoices in trials, chapter 1. Genuine faith spends time in the Bible. And in chapter 2, Genuine faith doesn't show partiality, and today, genuine faith affects the way that you live. You may be listening to this message and have to say, you know, I've never been born again. I've tried to do the works without the faith. Um, right now, I know the greatest need in my life is to be a believer, to have genuine faith that affects the way I live. Maybe you say, I have been saved, but I used to be able to prove it by my works, but lately, nobody could tell. I need a life that validates my words. Not to prove something that's not there, but to prove what is there. And you say, I need to get back to a, a life of, of genuine faith. D.L. Moody often said, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. And that's not because he was a shoe salesman. It's because he knew the importance of living our faith. Let's put our faith in action. Let's do what we say we believe. Let me just end. I know it's noon now, but Warren Wearsby listed nine questions to ask ourselves as we examine our hearts. Number one, was there a time when I honestly realized I was a sinner and admitted this to myself and to God? Two, was there a time when my heart stirred me to flee from the wrath to come? Have I ever seriously been alarmed over my sins? Three, do I truly understand the gospel that Christ died for my sins and rose again? Do I understand and confess that I cannot save myself? Four, did I sincerely repent of my sin and turn from them? Or do I secretly love sin and want to enjoy it? Five, have I trusted Christ and Christ alone for my salvation? Do I enjoy a living relation 
relationship with him through the word and in the spirit? Six, has, been, has there been a change in my life? Do I maintain good works or are my works occasional and weak? Do I seek to grow in things of the Lord? Can others tell that I've been with Jesus? Seven, do I have a desire to share Christ with others or am I ashamed of him? Eight, do I enjoy fellowship with God's people? Is worship a delight to me? And last, am I ready for the Lord's return? Or am I, am I going to be ashamed when he comes? Now he says not every Christian is, has the same personal experience, and he, he recognizes that there are degrees of sanctification in our growth. But for the most part, this list, this inventory, can really help us in determining our true standing before God. We're going to close with an invitation just as I am, and then... We're inviting you. An invitation is, is allowing you to come, responding to what the Spirit of God has been telling you to do, telling you what needs to be made right. And maybe you never have really been born again. And the faith is, is a dead faith. And I would encourage you to come and trust Christ as your Savior today. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that's been misunderstood by so many in church history. Help us to realize that we have a faith that will affect the way that we live. And I pray that in that faith, others will see Christ and we'll be able to give you the glory and praise for anything that's accomplished through our actions, through our words, and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.